Hi, you're listening to the sermon recording podcast of Awaken Church. Awaken is a church of missional communities whose vision is to see individuals experience healing through the gospel, be raised to their fullest potential among community, and sent out to live a life on mission. You can find out more online at awakenvb.com. And if you live in Hampton Roads, we invite you to check out our worship gathering in the Haygood area of Virginia Beach, Saturday evenings at 5 p.m. Thank you for listening. So we are going to begin tonight with a brand new series. Uh, again, I'm really excited to do that. Um, if you were with us the last several weeks, we did kind of a DNA uh, series of kind of who we are as a church, where we feel like we are and where God is leading us into. There's a few times throughout the church calendar where we kind of stop for a minute and try to think through what are some things that we need to also teach through. Uh, and so in this gathering, as we kind of bring our missional communities together and kind of have this worship service together, our, one of my purposes here as the teaching pastor is to make sure that we are not only educating you, but equipping you with things that you need to know and understand. And one of the things that as I kind of thought back over the last year or so, we haven't spent a lot of time really uncovering and unpacking some of the things that are found in the Old Testament of Scripture. And that's okay. There's a lot of narratives that we kind of weave in and out through. There's topical sermons that we do. We've done sermon series in Proverbs and Psalms. We've done several different things throughout the last couple of years. But for the next seven weeks, including tonight, we're going to spend a heavy dose kind of examining the kings of the Old Testament and the kingdoms that kind of are created in that process. And so what we're going to kind of begin to do is look at the course of about six books, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. These six books, over the course of about a 500 period, 500 year period of time, uh, begin to kind of outline roughly 42 kings that begin to oversee the people of Israel. And so, in this process, um, the 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 geek version of me. I get really excited. I, I'm, I'm super jacked about this sermon series because it just scratches and itches for me. Something that like I don't get a chance to like talk about a whole lot because honestly, as a teaching pastor, if we just talk about whatever I want to, we spend a lot more time just talking about uh, probably some different things than what we, what we do. But part of our sermon series are designed to help equip and guide you where we feel like the Holy Spirit is in the midst of our church right now. So I have to sometimes lay aside the things that Philip wants to teach on because I think it's what our church needs to hear, right? And so selfishly, I'm excited about this one. So uh, if for nothing else, just pretend to be excited for the next seven weeks. Stay awake the whole time. And uh, I promise you, if you stay with us on the journey, I think you'll not only learn something, but we'll have some fun on the way. One of the things that as I kind of thought through this King and Kingdom sermon series, though, that I want to be careful with is it's very easy, especially, and this is from my personal church background, it's very easy to simply get caught up in the addiction of information. And what I mean by that is you're going to learn some things in this series, some things that probably you've never learned before. I'm going to take a wild guess that the vast majority of us, maybe only a couple of us, have ever done any extensive study on Old Testament theology. There's going to be some things that you're going to learn that hopefully unpack and give you some uh, newfound knowledge that you're going to read about in Scripture. That's exciting. Whenever we learn something new, most of us get excited about new information. The danger with new information is that oftentimes, as we've talked about in our church repeatedly, is that information oftentimes stops with our head. It doesn't get transferred to our hearts, where God wants to transform parts of who we are. 
And then it not only doesn't get there, but it definitely doesn't get to our hands and feet where God calls us to live and be amongst the people of this world and to carry out the vision that God has for us to be on mission together, joining him where he's already at work. So make no mistake, although we're in the Old Testament studying kings that are dead long and gone and a part of the Bible that most of us probably haven't opened in a very long time, the end result is still the same, that you would leave here throughout this series feeling equipped and empowered to carry out the vision that God has called us to live amongst our people, to be on mission with him together, that we are sent by God to go and do these things. That isn't going to change in this series. It'll look a little bit different, stay with us in the process, but the heartbeat is the exact same. Now, I also want to say a couple of things just right off the bat in this series. Um, I don't know where your journey is at, and maybe some of you in the room are skeptics and doubters. Maybe some of you in the room are believers, or maybe anywhere in between on that spectrum. And that's okay, right? You're welcome here in the space. But as you approach the Old Testament, it's one of the things that I just want to kind of lay a foundational piece of, that there are people, even on our co-leadership team, which is our staff, made up of five people that lead and kind of govern and oversee the church here in partnership with the SLT. And even amongst those five people, there are people who have strong, different opinions about Old Testament theology. And that's okay, right? Because at the end of the day, we all land in pretty similar places, which is God's desire is to tell a story, a narrative that he uses throughout all of history and point it back to Jesus and the transforming power that lives today through the power of the Holy Spirit. That, that it doesn't change regardless of some of the opinions or interpretations of things in Scripture, whether it's creation, whether it's historical accuracy of stories, whether it's the purpose of the story being you know, to be literal or meant to be figurative, regardless of where people, even on our staff team, land around certain topics. I'm asking you in this series, maybe you're in that same place, you're not really sure where you land on certain things, and that's okay. You're welcome here to journey through that because this is an open-minded experience that we want to have collectively and see ultimately where is God stirring our hearts individually and as a church. And so there are two ground rules I want to give us in this series. The first one, pretty simple, no assumptions. Now, I say no assumptions, uh, and I'm talking mostly about those of us who will be teaching in this series. And I just referenced this a second ago. I don't assume that you know the people that we're going to be reading about in Scripture. I don't want to assume that you have heard of this person, that you know the backstory, the context of it. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. But if you're like me, there's nothing worse than sitting in a conversation or in a room and everyone assumes that you know what's going on, right? I think back to, I've been in the area now for eight years, and I remember sitting in a room with some people, uh, and several of them were active military, and within like five minutes, I was easily like... The, uh, the black sheep in the room because there have been about 10 acronyms used and I didn't know have a clue what was being said. And I was like, what's a SOP and this thing? And I was like, I, I need some help. You know, like there's just nothing worse than being in a room and having no clue what people are talking about. And part of the environment that we want to create here at Awaken is that regardless of where you are on the spectrum, that you feel like this is a safe place for you to understand and learn together with us. So Maybe you are a Bible scholar, maybe you have a degree in something, or maybe tonight you barely know who Jesus is because it's gotten pretty foggy over the last couple hundred years, right? Regardless of where you are, this is a safe place for you to learn and grow in that process with us. So we are going to do, we're not perfect, but those of us who are teaching this series are going to do our very best to not assume that you know what's already happening here or to assume that you've heard of this person or there's a context. So 
if you already do know, give us grace. And remember, you're not the only one in the room to remember that there are people here who maybe needs to understand the backstory. Maybe it's a good refresher course for you, or maybe for you it's the first time you're hearing it, right? Welcome to the show. We're here all in this together, right? So that's rule number one. Rule number two is that throughout this series, I am doing the bulk of the teaching of this series. I, and I'll speak for myself at least, I'm going to oftentimes refer to this section of the Bible as the Hebrew Scriptures. Let me explain why. The Hebrew Scriptures is something that I absolutely love. It's where I spend most of my like fun Bible reading. Again, that's the nerd in me that I spend most of time reading and learning through. I've read books on it. God's even done a lot of work in my own personal theology over the last probably two years in this area. But this is where I kind of geek out in the process. And that's okay. That's not you, right? But I'm just being honest about where I am. But one of the things that I've kind of had to unlearn and relearn in my personal journey through the reading of these scriptures is that when I hear the phrase Old Testament, I automatically disconnect from it. It carries with it some context for me growing up in church where I think it's not relevant, it's not as important, there's no Jesus, and, and it's not as important for me to spend my time reading. And maybe that was super bold and you would never say that, but I think at the core, a lot of us who are Christ followers spend almost all of our time reading and studying the New Testament because it's easier to copy and paste. Or there's this fun guy named Jesus, right? But we kind of ignore, which is arguably over two-thirds of your Bible, into this segment called the Old Testament. So I'm not trying to rewrite your Bible, right? It says Old Testament there for a reason. But for the context of this series, there's a people group and a nation that God is at work in using their story to help foretell a bigger story. And so to honor them and the narrative that I think God's trying to do, I'm going to refer to this as the Hebrew Scriptures because it's not old, it's not outdated, it's not irrelevant. It takes some extra digging, some extra unpacking. It takes some extra eyes and ears to kind of look at it and examine it. But make no mistake, there's relevance here for you and I today in 2019 America. There's a lot of relevance, as we're going to talk about even tonight with this series kind of kicking off, that I think in light of even what Dan was speaking to in the video, that we as a country, as a culture, need to hear what God wants to speak through this people group, this tribe of individuals that have a hard time getting it through their thick skull, what God's purpose and plan is for them. Hello, American church, right? So welcome to the journey for the next seven weeks. I'll be your tour guide most of the time. But at the end of the day, I really hope that we have some fun, but that you learn some things in the process. But Cliff Notes version, right, we are going to absolutely kind of bend and break some things that maybe you've always grown up hearing and seeing. And that's okay, right? That's the open-mindedness of it. So let's go ahead and start at like the 10,000-foot level, okay? So as I already explained, there's a 500-year span where 42 kings exist. Most of them are evil. There is a downright not good people. And so there's a few of them that you may have heard of before, guys like David, Solomon, and others, that we will spend some time in this series kind of examining, but the reality is, out of the 42, maybe eight or nine of them are good kings, collectively. Maybe if you want to stretch it to 10, right? But like in, in majority, three-fourths of these guys are not good people. They're not people that you would hang out with. You're not grabbing a beer with them. You're not having them over for dinner, right? They're not good people. And at the end of the day, where you find yourself and where you see these people is important because what I don't want to end up happening in the series is that you take some moral high ground. I would never do it that way. I'm way better than that guy. And again, it causes this disconnect that happens. So let's be honest. Let's be 
fair to the passage, but let's also remember the goal here is not to take right and wrong and evaluate yourself in comparison to someone else. The goal is not to compare yourself to an evil king. The goal is to compare yourself to where God's calling you to go. And we're going to use these messages of good and bad kings to kind of help us reflect, kind of do an autopsy of where we are and where God wants us to be as his people and collectively to the Big C Church. So again, roughly a few of them are pretty good, not a lot. And ultimately, this is a story, a narrative of God's weaving together of his chosen people, the nation of Israel, a tribe of people that for the bulk of it, it's a pretty sad story. For the bulk of it, it's a people that continue to find themselves worshiping other gods. In the Old Testament especially, the phrase that's used is idolatry. Worshiping an idol or a god that's not the god. And the Hebrew people find themselves constantly falling back into this place of idolatry. They're also a very arrogant, prideful people. They want it their way. They want it selfishly done the way that they think it should be done. And when it doesn't, they throw a temper tantrum. And it's easy for us to like sit back and be like, these jokers just didn't get it, right? Hello, that's arrogance, right? <laughs> that is us, right? So at the moments when we begin to feel that way, it's a good reminder that if that's our initial re- response, and that's a first really good, like, let's look in the mirror at how I just responded to watching someone else fail as a reminder of where my own pride is at in the process, right? So again, there's a lot that we can learn here. Now, one of the things that I, we will the undertone, if you will, or the, the underlying message throughout all of these kings that we'll study and all the messages over the next seven weeks is that God's not out of control in this process. He's not absent. And that's another important part of the story is that God absolutely is a loving parent whose desire is to lead and love his children even though they continuously throw temper tantrums, get it wrong, and want to walk away from him. And as a loving parent, he knows when to intercede, protect his children, and when to step back and say, you asked for that. You wanted that. What did you learn in this process? Maybe you grew up, again, in a Christian community, or maybe, maybe you didn't grow up in a Christian community, but maybe you've obviously heard enough about God to where you had this imagery of God as this very um, hard-nosed, judgmental, kind of distant figure. And I, get, I bet most of that comes from the Old Testament beliefs centered around who God is. And I hope that one of the things that you experience in this series is that that's not all the kind of God that we serve. That's not who the God is that I choose to follow in the process. So we're going to start kind of the, the base of the story. If you have your Bible or if you want to follow along with the Bible app, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 8. And we're just going to look at the very first king and the kind of the process that leads to that. Uh, next week we're going to be talking more about this guy, so I'm not going to tell his whole story and steal Connie's thunder, but I do want to go ahead and outline the basics up front of kind of what's happening What's kind of gotten us to this point? So in 1 Samuel chapter 8, we're going to read the first few verses together. It says, as Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons to be judges over Israel. So let's stop there for a second. You can go back to verse 1. Thank you. So Samuel is this prophet and judge 
of the Hebrew nation at this point in time. There's an entire book in the Old Testament called Judges. The point of this book is it kind of outlines the government that had been set up to oversee and lead the people of Israel at this point in time. And Samuel, throughout probably the five or six decades that he's alive, he is probably one of the most godly men that you will read about in the Old Testament. In this process, Samuel begins to really lead his people and guide his people into understanding that God's design and his love for his people is something pure and good. Now, at this point in the story, Samuel becomes the very last judge that oversees and kind of judges and leads the the people of Israel. And so the very first verse we read about, Samuel's getting up there in age, right? He's old. He's got two sons, okay? Let's read. We're going to skip verse 2. We're just going to read verse 3 here. It says, um, but they were not like their father, for they were greedy for money. They accepted bribes and perverted justice. So we have these two, like, knucklehead sons, right? They don't get it. And they basically, despite all the godliness of Samuel, they have lived a different lifestyle. And so, In this part of the story, we see very clearly that no matter how God, this is a good side note here, rabbit trail just for a hot second with me, especially those of you who are parents or grandparents in the room, please hear my heart that there's a good lesson here, just a quick glance, that your job is to be a godly parent, to lead and to to show your children the best way forward. And maybe Arguably, the only flaw that possibly could be accused of Samuel is that he did not do a great job of passing it on to his sons. Or maybe he did, and it just didn't take. But the message here, I just would say, is a random little side note here for those of you who especially are parents in the room, is you are not their Holy Spirit. You are not your kid's Holy Spirit. At the end of the day, your job is to lead them to the Lord, show them who Jesus is, and help them be empowered through the Holy Spirit to view the world differently. And if you do that, ultimately you have done your job as a parent. But at the end of the day, you cannot forcibly make your kids be who you are. And some of us have a really hard time with that. So those of you who are parents in the room, this isn't the point of the message, but just a quick side note, right? Samuel, one of the most godly men in the Bible, he's got two knucklehead sons who don't get it right, who leverage their father's power and influence for greed and for selfish desires. So we keep reading in verse 4. It kind of comes to a, 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 a crux here in the story. Finally, all the elders of Israel met at Ramah to discuss the matter with Samuel. They said, look, you are old. Your sons are not like you. Give us a king to judge us like all the other nations have. That's verse 4 and 5. So basically, again, they're saying, hey, look, we know you're old. Your sons suck, like they're not good, and we don't want them. And so, tell you what, let's go ahead and change the game a little bit. We've liked what you've done, right? And so, at the principle of this story, like there's a good motive here. There's, as you begin to look at it, there is a heart for these elders to say, look, we like you, like you're a godly man, you've helped us, you've shown us who God is, we've understood our role in this process. We don't always get it right, but you've done a good job. 
So can you give us someone that's kind of like you, but while you're at it, you know what? We looked around, and like, we're the only one. Like, we're the black sheep in the room. We don't have a king. So can you give us a king while you're at it in the process? Because we don't want your sons. We think it's the next, next best option, right? And so at, the, at the, the basic understanding of reading these two verses here, it makes sense to me as I read through the story. But it doesn't take much to really do a second glance to really get at the true motive here, which is in verse 5. Put it up there for me, Amy. Verse 5, they say, look, but we want a king like all the other nations have. Now, this is super important because we're not going to turn there up our Bibles or stuff on the screen, but if you're taking notes, write down the reference of Exodus 19. In Exodus 19, God begins to kind of lay out his plan, his hopes and purposes for the people of Israel as they were beginning to form as a nation. In Exodus 19, God begins to say, you are going to be my children. I'm going to use you to show the world my love and my desire. I'm going to use you as a people group to be set apart, to be holy. And I'm going to help you understand what that looks like. And I will be your king. I will be your leader in this process. You don't have to worry about it. I will take care of you. In the Hebrew, God actually calls the people, the Hebrew people, he refers to them as my little upright ones. Their, his desire was that they would stand upright in a world that was full of chaos, that they would be a beacon of hope and love and a reflection of who God is. And so in Exodus 19, he lays out this purpose of like, look, if you lean into me, if you press into me, if you help get, if stay close to me, I will provide for you. I'll take care of you. I'll give you everything you need. You will look different than the rest of the world. And that's going to be a beautiful thing because look what we can do together. But yet, if we look at this story tonight, right, where it begins for us in the series, that wasn't what they wanted. God said, hey, let's enter into a covenant relationship. Let's enter into a bond that's committed between me as your God and you as my people, and let's walk this out together. But instead, they decide now they want to break the covenant. They want to move away and do their own thing. And so let's go ahead and we're going to jump to the end of the chapter here for a second, because I just want to kind of read the end of it here in verse 20. So if you're following your Bible app, Samuel 8, verse 20. This is, again, the elders speaking back to Samuel. And they say, we want to be like the nations around us. Our king will judge us and lead us into battle. So Samuel repeated to the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord replied, do as they say and give them a king. Then Samuel agreed and sent the people home. So we get part two of the real motive in this last part of the passage of chapter 8. Not only do they want a king like all the other nations, but they also want a king for the purpose of leading them into battle. So some context here, right? There's a king, Nahash, that's on the doorstep of the Ammonite people. They're basically standing at the doorstep of the a nation of Israel, right, and a tribe off to the, the edge of, of, of their people group, and they're basically threatening to invade Israel in the process. And so part of their motive in this is not just to have a king like everyone else and like look the part, they're also terrified of, like, this guy's going to come in and, like, knock us out. So, like, we want a king, but we also want to lead us into battle, right? This is important because it absolutely leads to where we're going in this story of kind of who becomes the first king in the process. It also is, again, very incredibly hurtful because God has shown them, right? God has shown them so far 
that he conquers the most powerful nation in the process, the, the Egyptian people, right? Led them out of slavery. And God has said, look, I have provided for you. I have been your king. I have been the one leading you in the battle. I've protected you, kept you safe. I've done everything that I can do to show you who I am. And yet here they are asking for a kingly human version to not only be like everyone else, but to look the part and lead them into battle. So let's go back to where we left things off in the first part of, of 1 Samuel. If you keep reading, again, this kind of speaks to Samuel's heart here. We get a, a glimpse of, of God's heart in this process as well. Samuel was displeased with their request and went to the Lord for guidance. This is God speaking. He says, do everything they said to you, for they are rejecting me, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. You can almost, like, I read into the story, like, this very sad, like, tone of, like, God being like, they don't want me anymore. And he tells the story, ever since I brought them out of Egypt, they've continually abandoned me and followed other gods, and now they are giving you the same treatment, you, Samuel. Do as they ask, but solemnly warn them about the way a king will reign over them. So God's saying, look, he's not, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. Don't hear this and take this personal, right? This is about me, not about you. God's saying, look, you've been around for a few decades. I've been around for a long time. And in this process, these Hebrew people that I've led through literally overcoming slavery in the process, understanding what it means, I've literally taken them out of that place. And they're a fickle people. They change their mind all the time. They follow whatever they want. They're selfish. They do things as they want, whenever they want in the process. This is their tendency, that they kind of come and go. It's a pattern that my people have developed to only look for their desires, their hopes, their purposes. So God, as a loving parent, says, you know what? Let's see what happens. All right, let's play it out. You've asked for this. You've begged for this. Samuel has warned them. This is what will happen. They still say, we don't care. We want a king. And so if you kind of look ahead into the story, there's this guy named Saul. Saul is the very first king of Israel. Saul's name in the Hebrew literally means asked for. They got what they asked for. So let's look ahead real quickly here. 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1. Then Samuel addressed all of Israel. I have done as you asked and given you a king. Right? I've done what you've asked for. If you jump down to verse 13, same chapter, chapter 12, verse 13, there it is again. All right, here is the king you have chosen. You asked for him, and the Lord has granted your request. So they picked this guy named Saul from the tribe of Benjamin. They're a very, very tiny tribe in the history of Israel. But these people are warriors. They're fighters, right? The Bible says, describes them as left-handed. doesn't mean they're left-handed, although... You know, all left-handed people are obviously superior to right-handed people. <clears throat> um, but anyway, regardless of that, right, it actually means they're more ambidextrous. Like, you can cut off my right hand, I'm still going to beat you my left hand, right? That's what the Bible means by that reference. But, like, think the movie 300, right? Those, like, Greek warriors, this is, the, this is the tribe of Benjamin, right? They are warriors, they are fighters, and they're really, really good at it. So here's a man who stands, the Bible says, describes him as a man standing above everyone else handsome, right? Ladies, Saul walks in, you knew he was here, right? That's who Saul was. He was the king that looked like a king. 
He fit the bill of what they were looking for. He starts off strong too, man. He's like, look, God, I'm gonna, I'm gonna lean into you in this process. I'm gonna ask you to lead me and guide me. But like all of us, we can start out strong, but once adversity begins to happen in our life, our true colors begin to be exposed. At the end of the day, Saul begins to show that his heart was hollow in the process. So next week, we're gonna talk about Saul. Right? And God gets so fed up with Saul and how he train wrecks the process. As the very first king, he says, you know what? This lineage is not going to come from you. I'm going to pick the next king. Right? You had your chance. You blew it. I'm doing it now. And so God goes and picks this, literally the, the youngest, small, red-headed, freckled kid in his family and says, you know what? You're going to be the next king. And that guy's name is David probably the most revered king of all of Israel's history. And one of the things that's used to describe David is that he's a man after God's own heart. And if you read through the Psalms of the, New, of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, you see a beautiful display of a man's raw, vulnerable heart. But you also see a man who has his own demons in the process. You see a man... And we're talking about David during family gatherings. So I'm teaching that. I'm not going to talk about these things during family gathering. But there's a guy who, towards the end of his life, he allows these demons that he wrestles with to overtake him, right? He's someone who actually begins to have numerous wives. He sleeps with a woman who's not his wife. That woman is married to someone else. To cover up the sin of impregnating this woman, he sends this woman's husband out into battle, pulls the troop backs, essentially murdering that man. A man after God's own heart commits adultery and murder. A man after God's own heart. Maybe you've never heard this part of the story either. He has numerous wives, and one of his daughters ends up getting raped by one of his other sons. That is brought before David, and David literally does nothing about it. One of his daughters has been attacked and raped. And David, in his own household, doesn't do anything. A man after God's own heart. In fact, one of the other sons takes the matters in his own hand and kills that brother. This happens in David's home. But yet in the midst of all of it, God uses David and walks with him, right? Because it's not about the good king, bad king. It's about walking through it together and understanding where is God's presence in the midst of my life? There's repentance, there's confession, and there are moments where regardless of where your demons are as we walk through this as, as God's children, his desire is not perfection, his desire is presence, to walk with us in the process. David has a son named Solomon, and for everything that David didn't do as eight wives, Solomon did an excess. Almost a thousand wives and concubines that he had in his life. Drank, was merry, through the party, couldn't have enough of whatever it is, right? There's an entire book of the Bible called Ecclesiastes where he talks through this journey of understanding excess, of having and not having, learning the journey. And then after Solomon, we begin to see there's this massive divide that happens in the kingdom of Israel where God begins to divide the northern kingdom from the southern kingdom. And we're going to look at a few of the people in that process as well and also understand what God is doing within these two kingdoms. And literally no good kings ever live in the northern kingdom. In the southern kingdom, we have some of the evilest people that ever ruled and reigned over the people of Israel. Rehoboam, we'll talk about him. He's one of the evilest people in the Old Testament. 
you have this beautiful story of a man named Asa. You never, maybe never heard of him before. And he's a king, and, and not for incredibly long, but there's something special that God does in his life. At the root of all of this, right, I feel like I've been a tour guy as I explained to you the first week, but there's a message here that's really important for I want you to hear from my heart tonight in this series. That there's a nation, a people group, a tribe that has acted like they can come and go and do whatever they want. They've been entitled and they've literally been the recipients of miraculous guidance from their true king. And yet it's not enough. And so as you step back and begin to look at the story, the tendency for us is to do the exact same thing. Right? Collectively, I don't, I don't know where your heart's at tonight, and so I don't want to accuse you of something, but just to speak, if I can, just to be vulnerable in this place, we as the church today, we act, especially in the Western culture, like we're very entitled, whiny children. We want church to look a certain way. We want worship services to start and end on time because we got things to do afterwards, right? We want this ministry to look this way. We want this thing to happen a certain way. We have all these things that we want, and we make it about us. Newsflash, that's exactly what happens in the people of Israel. And so the Hebrew Scriptures tells this very sad story that unfortunately, in my opinion, is very parallel to the story right now that's unfolding in the westernized church of selfish people who throw temper tantrums when they don't get what they want, who have learned to consume instead of live as my little upright ones, set apart. Last week I talked about the idea that the gospel is not meant to impose something on you, but propose a different way of living. That was God's design for the people of Israel, that they wouldn't impose themselves on other nations, not conquer them, but propose a different way of living. And so as we walk through this journey collectively as a church, individually, as a family, and as a body of believers, or skeptics, or wherever you find yourself tonight, I want you to kind of do an autopsy of your own heart in this process and say, all right, God, where am I not trusting you fully? Where am I living like you're not enough. Because at the root of this message tonight is a people group that say we want a king because you're not enough. And I guarantee you none of you would ever say that out loud, but do an autopsy of your life and let's see if the same characteristics can be found in your story. I am really excited about this series because we have to have an honest conversation about what God is trying to do in us and through us. And the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures that we're talking about, it's a narrative, it's a story, and God is the masterful storyteller who's all about redemption, bringing people from where they were through their brokenness to where he wants them to be. And if right now we stop the story of the American church and where you and I are right now on Hampton Roads, I think it's a sad story. But ultimately, I think God wants to keep going in the story. And that's the beautiful thing is that in the midst of the story, God takes the brokenness of Israel and points us in the process to a man who will become Jesus through the lineage of King David. And so even in the midst of the chaos, God is orchestrating something beautiful and powerful that leads to redemption. 
And so I don't know where you find yourself on the story tonight, but I know as I, as a spectator and also as a part of the, the body of Christians right now, I feel like, man, it's very easy to become discouraged. But man, I can also see God doing some amazing things, working in some powerful ways. Right, the fact that, in, I know it's a, it's a video clip, right? You look at that, that dinner table that, that Dan White was having, right? People can gather and have a conversation about Jesus. That's beautiful. And so let's be a part of learning from the nation of Israel. Let's learn from them, not because of some moral high ground, but because we are absolutely in jeopardy of falling into many of the same sins that they did. Let's let the story of the church be one of showing people the inclusive nature of Jesus. Let's be the story of the church that shows people what it's like to be my little upright ones, a beacon of hope for the world. Let's not be the church known for judgmental ways that we view the world around us. Let's not be the church that imposes things on other people. Let's be the big C church that invites people to a table and has a conversation. Because guess what? If we can lead them to a shared table experience, I promise you, they will interact with a loving Jesus. And Jesus transforms people. Not you, not your moral high ground. Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, interwoven in our lives, reveals something. That's where we join the mission of God here and now, is showing up, sharing tables, and being the people that God calls us to be. Let's pray. God, tonight as a church, I repent. We repent for the moments and the times in our lives where we have not chosen to walk as humble children who have been given the world, but yet we act like entitled brats. God, forgive me and forgive us for that. God, I pray in the midst of of this very volatile nature that we find ourselves in, especially in our country, that, God, you would leverage and use the church to show love, to invite them to an inclusive gospel, that you would show them the way, the truth, and the life, and that life transforms. It proposes a different way of living. God, would you begin to stir up that in our own church? God, I pray that for Awaken, that you would use us, leverage us, to start whatever it is that you want to do, even here at Hampton Roads. God, we may be the minority at times in situations, but God, whatever it is that you want to use us for, God, we want to get out of the way. God, I don't want to be like the people of Israel who keep hitting their head up against the wall, who live in this idolatry of everything else being not enough. God, would you begin to transform us as a church, continue to move us on this journey so that as we are sent out and joining you on mission, the world around us would see something that's absolutely, authentically different. God, would you forgive our hearts? Examine our motives and invite us to a new way. In Jesus' name, amen.